Good morning. How's everybody doing? You guys doing good? Thank you. Good. Good to be here this morning. Excited about this morning. Anyway, uh, just before we get started, I want to remind you we do have uh, our Bible study tonight on A Better Way to Pray. We're, we're excited on that. We're just uh, barely into the third chapter, but you can come anytime. Uh, it's always an open door. Uh, also, I just want to let you know we are going to be starting a new Karis Bible study, uh, Spirit, Soul, and Body. This will be in Pasadena. Uh, we'll be starting that on July 20th, that's a Saturday, and from every Saturday there are now, uh, starting July 20th, again, that's in Pasadena. And if you want information more on that, check our website at lighthousediscipleship.org, and give us, or give us a call. Our phone number's on the website. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll fill you in on the details about that new Bible study. Okay? Also, I just want to remind you, I said this last week, but we have, we're, uh, for our Elios Bible, uh, uh, Elios Discipleship classes, we are taking a recess for the summer. And so we will resume uh, September 4th. The schedule and the calendar is already on the website. Again, that's lighthousediscipleship.org. And so anyway, you get all those information. We keep that up to date uh, daily. So as things happen, so uh, why not? Okay. With all the advertisements out of the way, Let's go ahead and jump into our message this morning as we're talking about seeing Jesus in the Revelation. Seeing Jesus in the Revelation. I've been excited about this study. I've been getting good comments and feedback on this study. As I've said before, this is the first time I've ever taught on the book of Revelation. Um, for many different reasons that I've talked before. But one of those is I've always wanted, I, I always have people put all the perspective on the end time events, when yes, that is included here, what we call eschatology, the end time events, but I don't believe that's supposed to be the focus. I believe the focus is Jesus. As I've said over and over again, I will continue to say over and over again, that I believe this is a book on revealing Jesus. It's not a book on, uh, it's not a, a book to reveal the doom and gloom. It's not a book to reveal the destruction and all the woes and all the, the wrath and anger. It's not, a, it's not a book to reveal the Antichrist or the tribulation. It's not a book of hitting meanings. Even the word revelation means to reveal, to unveil, to, to show openly, to make plain. And it's, it's not, a, it's, again, it's not a book about all these other things which we will start to talk about in brief next week, but it's a book about Jesus, and it's a book about a person, and his name is Jesus, <clears throat> and uh, with that, and, and when we, I believe when we understand Jesus, it changes how we receive from God, and I've also been talking about this, and I've talked about this also too in our last series when we talked about wisdom, but I've been teaching along these lines because of the day that we're living in, I believe we're in the last of the last days, and we need the wisdom of God in any day. And we need a relationship with Jesus on any day. Even the tribulations that we, we face in this life, uh, great tribulation or no great tribulation. We, Jesus said, in this life there will be tribulation. And I don't know about you, but in this life I have faced tribulation. But even on my best day, even on my good day, I need to see Jesus. I need to have a focus and relationship with Jesus. But also, in the days that are ahead, we need to have a relationship with Jesus. That is our anchor. That is our foundation. That is our everything. 
Jesus said that many hearts will fail them for fear for the things coming on the earth. As a pastor, as a leader, as a brother in Christ, I want to lead us into having a relationship with Jesus so that no matter what takes place in the hand, that we can be full of faith and not full of fear. <clears throat> okay? And so, um, I believe we need to see Jesus, and that must be our focus. Yes, there's going to be things that happen in there, and we're going to start talking about some of those things next week. But, Jesus must be our focus. Now, real quickly, uh, we don't have it on the screen this morning, but go ahead, real quick, to turn on your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And we've been kind of using this verse as kind of our roadmap to understand this book. And John was instructed in, in John 1.19, says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So, uh, in other words, we've seen this verse as uh, a kind of a roadmap in that sense, said to, to split this book into three sections. The first thing he's, John was supposed to write is the thing that John saw. What did John see? John saw Jesus. And actually, we can say that about the whole chapter, the whole book, all 22 chapters. But more specifically, I believe it's referring to chapter 1, where John saw Jesus. And we've been talking about that. We talked about talking, we, we, there's many aspects of seeing Jesus, and we've looked at five different aspects of that. Not, they're not the only aspects in this book, and they're not the only aspects in chapter 1. But we've been looking at five aspects of seeing Jesus. We, we've talked about how Jesus, how Jesus is the living word. <clears throat> in other words, and we're seeing this prevalent even in what we're talking about now, and we're going to talk throughout the book. Jesus has called us into a living relationship with him. The living word. We saw that also again. We talked about Jesus being the living word. We talked about Jesus being the, the This book is a book of grace. And if, uh, it's not a book of fear. It's not a book about doom and gloom. It's a book about grace and peace. And we see that from the beginning in Revelation 1 4. It, it, this book reveals Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God, He is the living word. We talked about how Jesus is the Savior of the world. And, and uh, he has called us into salvation. He has forgiven us. He has raised us up in righteousness. We talked about how Jesus is the eternal God and how the eternal God has given us eternal life. And then we've also talked about how Jesus is the resurrected king of eternity. So, Revelation 1 says, Write the things which you have seen and then the things which are. Which I, we believe those have to do with the seven letters, or the seven messages that Jesus sent to the seven churches. The things that are in Asia. And then the last part, which we'll, we'll start getting into next week, and the things which will take place after this. And we'll start seeing that next week, perhaps even a little bit today, depending on how far we get today. Okay? So anyway, so we've been looking at this... Uh, we started last week looking at the second section of this book, which is the seven letters or the seven messages that Jesus has to the church. Okay? And in talking about this, I believe these letters are letters to seven specific churches that are in Asia, which would actually be Turkey today, if we were to look at the map. But I also believe that these are seven conditions of any church. 
from the church, throughout the church age, from the, the birth of the church in Acts to now. And then there, there can be seven conditions that we can find in any church, local church. Okay? Okay. But with that in mind, I, I, I also talked about some things last week in, in, in uh, preference to um, uh, the study that, first of all, Jesus had, is writing to all seven churches. In other words, Jesus has a message for the church. And Jesus has a message for every church. Jesus has the answer to every church. No matter what condition we find ourselves in, as a church, or even as a family, or as, a, as individuals, Jesus is the answer. No matter what condition we are in, Jesus is the answer. And one thing that we've also seen, and we will continue to see in our study, that Jesus is the Lord of the church. See, chapter 1, we saw Jesus as the Savior of the church. Chapter 2 to 3, we see that Jesus is the Lord of the church. In chapters 4 to 22, which we'll get into next week, we're going to see that Jesus is the king of the church. He's the coming king. He's the resurrected king of eternity that we've already talked about in chapter 1. But Jesus is the Lord of the church. And as Lord of the church, Jesus gives a promise to every church. And we'll see today, even the church in its worst condition, Jesus gives a promise. Jesus offers grace to every church, even the church in this worst condition. Why does Jesus offer grace? First of all, Jesus is the grace of God, as we've been talking about. And because Jesus is the grace of God, Jesus offers grace, and that is the message to every church. Because if we're going to reveal Jesus, who is the grace of God, Jesus has a message of grace, who, and, and Jesus not only is the, is the grace of God, but Jesus, as we've studied already, Jesus is the living word. And he has a message for the church, even today. No matter what condition the church finds itself in. See, one thing, and I can talk about this from a lot of different angles, but we have to have the right lens on. That's why even the, my logo with this message is seeing Jesus. It's putting on the right lens. It's putting on the right glasses. It's putting on the right lens and when we have the right lens on, when we, we will see Jesus in this book. And when we see Jesus in this book, we're not going to see doom and gloom. We're not going to see a God of wrath. We're going to see His grace. We're going to see His salvation. We're going to see His love and His mercy towards the church. See, we have been conditioned religiously. We have been conditioned to always see what is wrong. Whether that comes on a personal individual level, whether that comes on a family, or a, a group level, or whether that comes on a corporate church level. We have always been conditioned, what's wrong with this church? What's wrong with this family? What's wrong with this person? We have been so conditioned religiously and naturally, carnally to see what is wrong instead of seeing what is right. We, in other words, my encouragement as pastor to you is to change your focus to see what is right instead of always, or in this instance, seeing what is wrong. Again, we have been so conditioned to see performance, to see man's failures and shortcomings. 
instead of seeing his grace. And Jesus has a message for the church. Okay? And in every church, Jesus comes and tells them things that are right. In five of the seven churches, Jesus does give a rebuke. He does chastise them. He does tell them some things that they that some challenges that they have. But even though Jesus points out the challenges, he doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't cut them off. He actually shows, gives them a promise. And he points them to the direction that they should go. Two of the churches, Jesus gives no rebuke to. We saw that last week in Smyrna, the persecuted church. And we're going to see it today with Church of Philadelphia, the missionary church, also known as the Church of Brotherly Love. Okay? But five of the seven churches, he does chase them. He encourages them to go in the right direction. And this, go, again, goes with our religious mindsets. When we even think of the word, uh, of, of the concept of Jesus chastising anybody, or chastising a church, or even rebuking a church, we, we take God's rebuke and reproof and chastisement as God's anger. No, that is not gospel. That is not biblical. That is not right. When Jesus chases his church, when God chases anybody, it's not an act of his anger. It's an act of his love. It's an act of his mercy. Okay, and love. Any good parent is going to chasten the child they love. Any good pastor is going to, in the right way, going to chasten the church if they need to. Any good coach is going to chasten his athlete and, his, and, and the people that they're coaching. It's, it's love. It's part of the job description. It would be wrong. It would be hateful to not chasten a child. Not chasing people in love. The best friends I have are the friends who will come to me and tell me and be frank with me and be candid with me. Yet in love, not in spite, not with malice. That's not a good friend. That's not how God operates. But would be honest enough to tell me what is wrong. That is, we have to see chasing as this is how God loves us. See, if you understand Jesus, and you understand mercy, it will change how you respond when God corrects you, when God reproves you. So I could bring a lot, a lot of scriptures. I'm not trying to make this my main point this morning or even in this message. When you read the book of Proverbs chapter 3, it talks about Solomon teaches us how we are to embrace mercy. We put, the, the, put it around our neck. And he goes on in that same chapter. Don't lean on in your own understanding. In all your ways of knowledge, him, he will direct your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And then he goes on in the same chapter. He says, a father disciplines the one he loves. And that's where the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 quotes from. He quotes from Hebrews chapter 12, saying that a father disciplines the one that he loves. And so I see mercy and discipline. Mercy and chastisement. In other words, let me say that backwards. I see chastisement as mercy. I cannot separate the two. I don't believe mercy is all chastisement. 
But chastisement is part of the mercy of God. In other words, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, which means teaching. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training or instruction in righteousness so the man of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need the reproof of God. We need the mercy of God. We need the correction and the instruction of God. That is God's nature. That is our, he's our Lord. And I also see him not only, when I say he's the Lord of the church, he's the shepherd. A shepherd will lead and guide his sheep. He'll use his rod and his staff out of mercy to protect and guide and lead the sheep if they go astray or go in the wrong direction. You ever see a, a shepherd's staff that's got that little hook to guide, not to, not to whip, not to anger, not to kill, not to injure, not to belittle, not to humiliate. There's a difference between being humble and being humiliated. God's not here out of wrath. God's out of mercy, reproving and correcting, bring correction where it's needed in His church. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a loving thing. It's a merciful thing. And we got to take off the lens of wrath and put on the lens of God, His mercy. Because if we understand how God corrects us, then we will, in the mercy and nature of God, correct others when it's needed, or when we have that authority. Okay? That's a whole other can of worms. But there are times where we do, and some relationships where we have the authority and the... And the permission to bring correction. And there's a lot of things I can talk about those lines. I mean, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that it's the job of the church to judge the church. We talked about this with wisdom. We talked about this about the pillars of wisdom not too long ago. We're not here criticizing. We're here doing righteous judgment. But it's, a, and, and, and when Paul says, he uses very harsh words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that when the church goes to the world and the court systems to bring correction in his church. Paul calls that shame. He says that should not be. But we are to admonish one another. We are to encourage one another. In love, in mercy, not in wrath, not in anger, uh, but we are here to encourage and admonish one another as the bride of Christ. That makes sense? Uh, there's a lot there. I know that can be touchy ground for stuff, but that's the nature of God. That's who our God is. I mean, our God's not just going to keep letting us do, I mean, we can't, he's not going to force anything. But if we're doing something that's unhealthy, something that's dangerous, and we want him to be our Savior and our Lord, we're going to allow him to bring correction where correction is needed. Why? So are we being corrected so that we, by our performance, can be saved? No. We're being corrected because... <clears throat> Because that's who we are. We're, we're very reminded who we are. In other words, a lot of this correction that we'll see in a lot of these churches that we've already seen already, God is leading us back into a relationship with Him. That's most of the correction. Most of the correction is that we got our eyes on the problem, we got our eyes on the flesh, we got our eyes on other things, and we got our eyes and our focus off Jesus. That's why we're seeing Jesus in the Revelation. 
We've got our eyes focused on most of the, the correction, most of the, the chastisement is correcting this church to get their focus back on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That makes sense? When my relationship with God is not where it should be, my flesh is in control. And my flesh doesn't respond and react. It can be, my flesh can be depressed. My flesh can be angry. My flesh can laugh, ash out. My flesh can lust for things that it shouldn't lust for. But when I'm in relationship with Jesus, the Bible says, Paul says this way, walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We don't control the flesh by controlling the flesh. We control the flesh by walking with Jesus. We control the flesh by letting him be our, the living word. Letting him be the grace of God in our life. Letting him be our savior and our eternal God and our resurrected king authority. It's about a relationship with God. And most of his chastisement is bringing us back into a healthy, rightful relationship of abiding in the vine. Where that fruitfulness, the fruit of holiness can come out. Where the fruit of righteousness can come out. We're going to be looking at this. Actually, once we're done with this series, I'm going to be doing a short series on the beauty of holiness. And I don't want to get into that right now because I want to finish this, this, uh, this, uh, this series. But holiness is beautiful when it's God. Now, I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about man-made. But there is a beauty of God's holiness. And we are, we were created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Holiness is our nature and our spirit. And God is chastising us so that we will live like we are the, we created to be in Christ Jesus. Out of relationship. If we try to do holiness or righteousness based on our performance, that's self-righteousness. That's sin. That's carnal. It's filthy rags. But when we allow the nature of God to flow in us, because we have a relationship with God, the seed, the vine, His nature flows in us and it's beautiful. But we can't, if all we're doing is roof picking, if all we're doing is correcting behavior, but we're not correcting people back into a rightful relationship with God. That is not the mercy of God. That is not the chastisement of the Lord. Because all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training. Where? In righteousness. In our relationship with God. In our right relationship with God. That's what righteousness is. And, and so that we might be complete and fully equipped for every good work. Okay? So anyway, uh, I just want to—I ha- I want to go off on that a little bit because we're, we were talking about five of these seven churches. Jesus corrects, and if we can't—if we can't be corrected now, when when it's not so hard, I'm not saying things that we're going through are not hard, but in light of the tribulations that are coming, and the Bible says Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it, John talks about it in this book. That we need, and we can't handle it, as Jeremiah says, when the foot soldiers are here, what are we going to do when the horsemen come? We need to have a relationship with God. And we need to hear His voice. And we need to be corrected. We need to hear our shepherd's voice and correct us and lead us and guide us now so that we can be learned to hear His voice then when it gets stormy. An athlete needs to know his coach's voice. In practice, in, in, in preparation, so that when they're in the field, when he's in the battle, he can still hear his coach's voice coaching him in the right direction. That makes sense?
Well, as we uh, look at the seven churches, we looked at four of them already, and I'm hoping to wrap up this part today. We looked at the church of Ephesus. I'm not going to rehash all this this week. But the church of Ephesus is also called a loveless church. They lost their first love. We looked at the church of Smyrna. They were known as a persecuted church. This is one of the two churches that Jesus did not rebuke. The persecuted church of Smyrna. And then we look at the church of Pergamos. And there's a worldly church, also known as a compromising church. And then we look at the church of Thyatira, which is also called the religious church, or also known as the corrupt church. Don't worry about these titles. But I, I, one reason I give these titles of the kind of church they were, and it kind of points a picture. Uh, we're talking about the seven, the, I don't think these are the only conditions, but there are seven conditions that can be in any church. And I don't know about you, but I've seen compromising churches. I've seen corrupt churches. I've seen churches that were persecuted. I've seen churches that have lost their first love. And today we're going to be dealing with the last three. And the first one that we're going to deal with today is the church of Sardis. So if you turn, go ahead and turn with me in the Bible. So Revelation chapter 3. And we'll pick up and we're going to have, uh, deal with the last three churches today. The church of Sardis, which is the dead church. And then we'll look at the church of uh, Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, or the, also known as the missionary church. And then uh, we'll be dealing with the last church, the church of Laodicea. And that is the church in its worst condition. Okay. Um, also known as the lukewarm church. Okay. Now I don't know about you, but I've I've seen churches, I've seen people, I've seen families in all seven of these conditions. Okay. But again, even the church in its worst condition, Jesus has a message. And it's a message of grace. It's a message of mercy. Okay? You with me so far? Okay? So we're going to pick up the fifth church today, the Church of Sardis. And it's called, the, it's also known as the Dead Church. So let me go ahead and read Revelation chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These words, these things say, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember that for how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in, the, in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus concludes each message, each letter he has for each of these seven churches with these words of He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. So again, this is sorry, the Church of Sardis, which is called also known as the Dead Church. We see that in verse uh, 1. It's at the very last part it says that you have a name, that you are alive, that you are, that you are alive, but you are dead. It's a dead church. But to the church that, Jesus, to this dead church, Jesus reveals himself 
as the seven spirits of God. Or in other words, that's also going to make you one, too. It's in verse, excuse me, let me get my bearings here. Even uh, back in verse 1, he says, He who has the seven spirits of God. Jesus reveals himself as the spirit of God. Now, these seven, you'll see this term, the seven spirits of God, we saw in chapter 1, we see it here in chapter 3, we're going to see it again in chapter 5 of Revelation. If you go to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, again, we're not going to go there, we've been, been there before, uh, but uh, there's seven aspects of the spirit of God that are outlined in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and I'll, I'll just highlight that for you. It's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Again, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These are known as the seven aspects of the spirit of God. So, <clears throat> more importantly though, Jesus reveals himself as the spirit of God. This dead church. In other words, he's saying, I am the one who is anointed. And I am the spirit of, I am the one with the spirit of God. Now, when I listen to Lawson Perdue as he teaches on this, and even Andrew, but Lawson Perdue specifically, he illustrates this, and one way he illustrates this is he'd been to churches. He was uh, uh, back in Colorado and Kansas area, where a church where the pastor, or there's a switch of pastors perhaps, and the new pastor is not spirit filled, does not believe in the Holy Spirit, does not, we, we, we Sherry and I, we were part of a church for a brief period of time when we lost everything back in 2009-ish and they didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's a dead church. It was dying. And Lawson would say he's seen churches who don't believe in the Holy Spirit, who don't preach about the Holy Spirit. They begin to die. And they begin to die. We've been actually part of multiple churches in some way or another where the Holy Spirit was not preeminent. And uh, they just, uh, the church was dead. We've known churches. But then they awesome will all say, there's a, in some, of these, some of these same churches, where there's a, there's a switch of pastors, and the new pastor is spirit-filled. And the church becomes vibrant again. It begins to grow again. Um, and so, uh, the, what, the, in other words, Jesus is revealing himself to this church that is dead, that, saying that you need the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but when I'm not walking in the spirit of my own life, my own life begins to decay. My own life begins to get stagnant. Jesus, I mean, Paul told, told uh, uh, Timothy, stir yourself up in the Holy Spirit. Stir up, fan the flame. And if you find me, I don't know about you, have you ever been in a season where you're not feeling motivated? Where it just becomes stagnant? Get into the spirit. One thing we've been seeing throughout this whole series is that we need to have a relationship with God. John is writing this, and he's writing this because he's also got caught up in the Spirit. And we have, church, we have to be reminded, we have Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's the Lord of the church, but he's also given us his Spirit. He said in the last day, he's poured out his Spirit upon all flesh. We have the Holy Spirit. And we need to have a relationship with the Spirit. We need to get in the Spirit. We need to speak and pray to the Spirit. 
I know some people this is challenging because it challenges your doctrine. But in love and mercy that I just talked about, I'm challenging that. Get into the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Get in presence with God. I know people like Andrew Womack. They spend time regularly, daily, in the Spirit. Jesus said, I get a little ahead of myself, but Jesus said in John 7, 38, He who believes on me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. We need the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is upon us. He's anointed us to preach the gospel, the hill of said. If, if you're stagnant, if you feel like you're dead, you need to get connected with the Spirit of God. And am I making any sense here? That's how Jesus is revealing himself to this, this, this church at death. Okay? In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 3, specifically, when they chose people to be leaders in the church, the deacons would not. They were looking for those that would make... There were like three qualifications, but one of those qualifications were those who were led by the Spirit of God. If I'm going to let anyone serve in this church as a, in, a, in a pastoral way, whether they be a worship leader or a youth pastor, children's pastor, or anything of that nature, I, one thing, I'm, I'm going to be looking for those three qualifications that I see in, in Acts chapter 6, 3, and one of those, I want them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? When, when Karen Pharmacologist or, or, or Andrew's ministry teaches people to, to be ministers on the prayer lines, they need to be able to function in the Holy Spirit. Now I'm talking about ministry right now, but we need the life of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, 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 I grew up in a Christian home, but I remember in my, between my freshman year, my sophomore year in the summer, at our church, at Word of Life Church, that we... I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. My life changed. I didn't even, I saw some differences, but I remember some people who saw me said, Dave, there's something different about you. And I, you know, from, I didn't necessarily notice all the changes, but they noticed that. The Spirit of God was in me. Okay? And so, uh, there's a difference. It, it was a lie. It, it, it makes a difference. I can, t I can tell when someone is Spirit-filled. Not because I'm seeing them necessary function in the gifts, and not because I'm necessarily seeing them speaking in tongues, which we believe all those things. But there's a, there's a demeanor, there's a, there's a shine, there's an anointing, there's a glow that is just distinct between those who are not filled with the Spirit. I can tell, tell when someone's saved and not saved, just by their demeanor and their actions and whatnot. It shows. But a guy can also show seeing when those who I know they're saved because I know the person but they're not doing well right now they're just dead and what's missing? the spirit of God the spirit of God is missing and so um, and uh, not because he's not there he's just dormant and we have to stir ourselves up in the Holy Spirit and so uh, anyway there's a lot I can be said along that those lines but he also says here something in verse 5 and I don't want to spend a lot of time with this I want to get to the other churches Actually, let me read verse 4 with it. You have a few names, even in the Sardis, you have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When we read that, especially from a New Testament race point of view, we, we can look at that and we can again have the wrong lens on 
MC performance that we do something. Let me just say, first of all, this righteous garment, this this garment of righteousness, is not something that we earn. It's something that's given to us. The saints, you'll see this in the book of Acts. They don't make the garments. They're given this garment. We see this in Romans five seventeen that it's the gift of righteousness. We don't earn righteousness. We are born again of His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteous. We might be born of the righteous God. Righteousness is a gift. And this garment uh, uh, is, is a garment of righteousness. Okay? Why bring it? And we're also going to see also, too, later on, that it's dipped in blood. It's, 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 uh, and, uh, his name is the word blood. Anyway, that, 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 we'll see that a little bit later. But he also says here that he won't block his name out of the book of life. You know that one thing that tells me? That whenever everyone is born again, actually because of Jesus, because of Jesus, what he did on the cross, everyone's name was written in the book of life. But if we reject Christ, if we don't receive Christ, then our names are blotted out of that book. Because of Jesus, I see that, how do I know that? So go over the real quick with me, keep your finger in Revelation 3, but it says here uh, in 1 John chapter 2, It speaks this way also in 2 Corinthians 5, but I'm just going to read one of them. But it says, uh, I'm going to read verse 1 too. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for who? The whole world. Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God is not imputing the, the world's sins to them. But if we reject Jesus, and we have that choice to reject the sacrifice, to reject our propitiation, to reject Jesus as our Savior, we can reject it by not receiving it. And other ways of rejection. Our names are blotted out of that book. Jesus through the cross put all of our names in the Lamb's book of life. But if we reject it, and we have that right to reject it, then our names are blotted out. And so we're not, we're not starting from a place of defeat to the cross. We're starting from a place of victory. We have the, the, the capacity to reject it. But I also want to, uh, real quick, go to, with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Hope we're making sense with this. How do we overcome? It says in Revelation that we overcome by the, the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We don't overcome because of something we do. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. It's only by the blood of our Lamb that our names are written in the book of life. It's not based on what we do. Okay? But in Him also, you also trusted after you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus is revealing himself as the Spirit of God. And Jesus, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our, our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. But let me, let me just say this. I wrote these, some notes down, just, and I got these actually from Andrew's commentary. On this verse, on these verse, two verses here in Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And Andrew says this. We can't defile our spirits. Anyone who has been around, we talk about spirit, soul, and body. Our spirit is born again. 
Our soul and our flesh is not born again, our bodies. But our spirits are born again. We cannot defile our spirits. It is sealed, and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what I just read in Ephesians chapter 1, 13. Our souls and our bodies, we can defile them. You can, you can pollute your mind. You can pollute your body. But we need to turn, turn from what we've done wrong and confess or agree with our Lord Jesus Christ. Then the righteousness that is in our spirits it's already there. We're born again. We've been made the right of God. Then the righteousness that's in our spirit comes into our flesh, our body, our minds. That's how we're renewed, by the renewing of our mind. Let me just read what Andrew says again. Then the righteousness that is in our spirit comes, from our, comes into our flesh, and it purges us from all unrighteousness. That's where we get that in 1 John 1, 9. When we are renewed in our minds who we are in Christ, it, everything we need is already in that seed, this righteous seed, God, this eternal life, this seed that we have from being born again, not of Adam, this born again, this salvation, this righteousness is a gift. And in that seed, in that nature, is everything we need for life and godliness. But it's source, it's our, our spirit is already righteous. But as we are transformed by the... How many of you know, if you indulge in sin, if you do something, you do something wrong, your conscience bothers you. Or should. <laughs> it, but sometimes we need to be cleansed because the enemy is going to the, take your lunch and pop your back and he's going to rub your face in the dirt with everything that you did wrong, everything you thought wrong. But we need to be reminded we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have been clothed with the raiment of righteousness. And our righteousness is not based on what we've done. It's based on what he's done. But we need to get our focus. We need to get our eyes back on Jesus. Our righteousness, our gift. And be purged in our mind and our body from all unrighteousness. Maybe we got a sickness. Maybe we've been diagnosed with cancer. Well, we need to get the lens on. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We don't have to put up with this cancer and purge our mind and say, By his stripes, I am healed. Cancer be gone. We're renewing our mind from this unrighteousness, this cancer, this illness, this, this, the way we've been thinking. What have we put our minds to? We're renewing our minds to what's already in our, our spirits. One more verse, and then I want to move on. But Romans chapter 8, <coughs> verse 10. Romans 8, 1 talks about how many, it, I don't have to turn there, but it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? But it says in verse 10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because is life because of what? Righteousness. But the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to you, what? Your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you. That's everything we've been talking about. The life is in our spirit and he gives life to our mortal bodies by what? His spirit. Jesus is revealing himself to this dead church that he is the Spirit of God. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors not to the flesh 
to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. That's repentance. You will live. Yes, repentance by definition is changing your mind, but as you change your mind, you will change your behavior. As you change the root, you will see the fruit. We're grafted into Christ. We're not producing what we used to do in the flesh. We're producing what we are in Christ. Because we're grafted, we're renewing our mind. We're not living according to the flesh, Adam. We're living according to the Spirit, Jesus Christ. That makes sense? And when we do that by the Spirit of God, we put to death the flesh. Okay? <coughs> but as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage to give to fear, <coughs> but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, <coughs> excuse me, that we are the children of God. Our children and heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There's a lot in this passage, but Jesus is revealing himself to this dead church of Sardis as the Spirit of God. And he's, re he re he's revealing himself and he's given them a promise. You are clothed with raiment. Your names are blocked blotted out of the book of life. I mean, I mean, excuse me, your names are written in the book of life. And how do we overcome this deadness? How do we overcome any corruption that is in our minds and our bodies because of sin that we might have been dabbling with? We come back into a relationship with God. We come back into a relationship with the Spirit of God because we, as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, we talk about the lust of the flesh. I, use, I use, often use examples of depression or anger or even just fleshly fornication type of things. But how many of you know sometimes your flesh just wants to be lazy? Complacent. Sometimes your flesh is just not motivated to do anything. Your spirit is motivated all the time. Your flesh is not. And sometimes if we're if we give heed to our flesh to be lazy, we're, we're living according to the flesh. But how do we overcome laziness and complacency? Walk in the Spirit when you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Hopefully that makes sense with this, this church. Making sense? But we need to have a relationship with God. We need to be reminded who we are in Christ. And stir that gift up. It's there. If you're born again, if you are, you already have the Spirit of God. You already have the nature of God in your spirit. It's in your righteous nature. Stir it up. Be reminded. And don't live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit, who is your righteousness. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's go on to the next church, the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Phil, uh, Brotherly Love, also known as the, the Missionary Church. Um, so Revelation chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, 
and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, you have a little strength, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will not. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and they know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to preserve. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly, or fast where you have had, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him in the name of my God, and the name of the, the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my name. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Church of Philadelphia is also known as the Missionary Church, or the Church of Brotherly Love. Just the word. Philadelphia means Brotherly Love. But this is one of, those, one of the two churches that Jesus does not rebuke this church. In other words, I believe that Jesus reveals himself to this church as the door. Uh, he, he said, I have sat before you an open door. You'll have to turn to him in John chapter 10. Specifically, verse 9, John, Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus is the shepherd of the church. And Jesus is revealing himself afresh to this faithful church. That's another name for this church of Philadelphia. They've been also known as the faithful church. I've been around churches that are just faithful. They're faithful. And I... And one one of the churches that a couple of churches that I've just seen in that area of faithful churches is Boston's church. I've seen that at Dwayne Sheriff's church. I've seen that some other churches too. But they're just faithful. But he says, I am the door. We come into he said we come into the fold through uh, actually excuse me, I'm saying this all wrong. I'm, I'm supposed to be talking to you according to my notes. Excuse me. We come into the fold of his church through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the door. The only way we come into the fold, the only way we have relationship within the church is through a relationship with Jesus. It's through him that we have fellowship with him. That makes sense? See, when we have fellowship with him, we find pasture. We find provision. We find protection. We find refreshing. You know, we teach a lot in this church that fellowship is important. But sometimes we find ourselves, we can find ourselves like John where fellowship is not an option. John is here on the island of Patmos. He's, he's been uh, uh, banished here. But Jesus, and we also read it, uh, how John got into the spirit on the Lord's day. And that's how we even got this book, this revelation of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the door. And he, he, even though we're, he, we can be right where we need to be in a faithful church, and Jesus, I believe Jesus is just telling John, uh, this church in Philadelphia, I am the door. Just keep your relationship with me. Keep your, your fellowship with me. Don't get, and how many of you know if you're a faithful church, you're a growing church, you can get very distracted by the growth. You can get very distracted by the success. You can get very distracted by just the fact that you're being faithful. 
and get focused on your faithfulness and get with our eyes off Him. If there's any faithfulness, if there's anything good in us, it's because of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. <clears throat> you know, we're going to get into this a little bit when we get into our next series, talking about the beauty of holiness. But we want people to see our good works so that they see Him. So that they give glory to God. When we're a pillar in the house of God. For example, I see Andrew Wokman Ministries. I see uh, Barry Bennett and all these other people that we like as just pillars in the house of God. Why? They've been faithful. They've been faithful to what God's called them to do. They've been faithful as a missionary church. They've been faithful as a church of brotherly love. And they've just become pillars where we can trust them. Where we, we trust God in them. That makes sense? And they've just become pillars. And uh, that's my heart is, I don't want people to see my faithfulness and give me credit. But I want to see people to see God in me through my faithfulness. That makes sense? I want Him to give the glory. I want them to see Jesus in me. The opposite, the opposite of that is that in my lack of faithfulness, they won't see Jesus at all. And we're going to see that a little bit more when we get into our season, our series on the beauty of His holiness. But I also can see, I've seen sometimes faithful churches get tired and get overwhelmed just by the, the task of being faithful. My exhortation of that, and I believe I see that even here, is that we find rest in Jesus. We live, we live in fellowship with Jesus. And, and he, cause he, said, he talked about them having little strength. Well, our strength comes from a relationship with Jesus. It's in Jesus. You know, when I'm reading this, this letter, this message to this church in Philadelphia, I immediately come to the 23rd Psalm, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lays me down in green pastures, and by still waters. You know, sometimes even the faithful church needs a refreshing. Just needs to be refreshed. And where do we find that refreshing? In His Spirit. The Bible talks about it in, in Isaiah, how in, in the Psalms, how uh, praying in tongues is called the refreshing. Praying in the Spirit, as we just talked about with the last church. Being in the Spirit is refreshing. We need to be refreshed. We can't go on yesterday's manna. Just because we're faithful today, just because we're doing good today, we can't go off yesterday's manna. We need to remain faithful. We need to, re we, we need to remain abiding in the vine. So that we can have bare fruit in all seasons. That makes sense. So even though I don't see him necessarily giving uh, any, uh, correction here, but but there is admonishing. He's the door, and uh, if we he's the door to come in, and he's the door to go out. In a sense, if we leave our relationship with him, we just left the fold. But if we have a relationship with him, we will stay in the fold. That makes sense? He's the door. You can't get in, in through him, and the only way to leave is stop having a relationship with him, Jesus, the door. But when we rest in him, when we live in fellowship with him, we are strengthened, we are refreshed, and that is a very marvelous thing. Okay, am I making sense with that? Okay, let's go to the last church here, the church of Laodicea. 
we're going to pick it up in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans, write, <coughs> excuse me, these things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. <coughs> excuse me. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may, be, may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This last church, the church of Laodicea, is the church in its worst condition. You know, throughout this series, I've been talking about how Jesus offers grace and mercy and a promise to every church. I've had people question that through the years. How can you see a grace in this church? How can you see God's promise and mercy in this church? Kind of my responsibility is if you can't see it in this church, you just, you're blind. <laughs> you can't see it. I don't mean that as to be negative or to be offensive. But I see God's grace just screaming out of this, his message of this church. First of all, let me, before I even go fully there, Jesus reveals himself to this church as a, as a creator. All things were made by him, and as our creator, Jesus knows what is best, and Jesus knows what is good for us. Jesus knows what we need. He created us. He created our hearts. He created our flesh. He created the, uh, uh, the desires that we have for acceptance, even for things for pleasure. He created those things. In its right context, in its right way. I'm not talking about things that are evil. But let me just say this, verse 19. And I've said this before, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous to repent. Jesus is not chastening and rebuking this church out of anger. He's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of mercy. Okay? This is the church in its worst condition, but Jesus is loving, is chasing them. Why? Because he loves them. That's key. If we don't get that, we're going to miss the whole message here. Jesus is chasing because he loves them. It's not an absence of his grace. 
is the absence of his anger. He's not wiping them out. There's some rebukes here. He rebukes them because he loves them. Just like a parent would, just like a coach would, just like a good pastor would. I mean, if you go, when I say a pastor rebukes and, 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 and disciplines his church, if you ever hear Lawson speak, if you ever hear Dwayne Sheriff speak, and I use them as two pastors that I look to as models, they will, out of love and compassion and mercy, chasten their churches because he loves them. That makes sense. I want that as a pastor. And actually, Lawson Purdue is our pastor. And uh, we do look to him. We do go to him for, for, for counsel and advice. And so, and so uh, I, we need a pastor ourselves. I believe we're going to get this here later in another series I'm going to do later on this year. But immaturity does not understand God's chastening. When we don't understand chastening, that tells me we're immature spiritually. You know, as a child, I didn't always understand being disciplined, being chastened by my parents and, and leaders. But now as I look back, I see it as mercy. I see it as good. I'm glad I was sheltered from some things. I'm glad I was disciplined when going down some wrong behaviors. I see it now as mercy. I see it now as good correction. At the time, in the moment, I may not have seen it because I was immature. But as I matured, thank God, by God's grace, and with my parents and other people's help, I matured. But chasing is, 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 is good, and I see that because I now have Hopefully, at the lens of maturity, I've seen chastening good. Because Jesus has encouraged him to go in the right direction, this church in its worst condition. So let me verse back to verse 20 and 21. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my father's throne. People who have asked or, or questioned me, how do you see grace and mercy in this book? Jesus is standing at the church in its worst condition. He's standing at the door and he's knocking for one main purpose. He wants a, he wants a relationship with them. He wants a, a fellowship with them. Jesus, the Lord of the church, the creator of the world, is knocking on the door of the church in its worst condition and saying, if you open the door so we can have fellowship, so we can have a relationship. If, if you don't see grace on that, I, I don't know if I can help you. I'm not trying to, to, to con condemn you or, or, uh, or uh, offend you, but Jesus stands at the, at the door and knocks. Is that not grace? Jesus wants fellowship with them. He wants to sup them with them. He wants to sit. And knowing that, knowing that, he says, he if you will come in, you can sit with me on my throne. Jesus is making an invitation to the church in its worst condition to come and let's have a relationship and come and sit with me on my throne. If you overcome, yes, it says that. <coughs> How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of our testimony, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus has already overcome. If we will receive Jesus, and uh, again, we've talked about this in times past, 
recently, just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, what is eternal life, according to John 17, 3? Eternal life is having a relationship with God. Jesus is offering a relationship with them. If we have a relationship with Jesus, we have eternal life. And if we have eternal life, we have overcome. And we can not only have a relationship with Jesus, which is eternal life, but in that eternal life, we can sit with Jesus on his throne. And that is much better than sitting on Santa Claus's lap. We get to sit on that King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our God, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Lord, the grace of God. We get to sit with Him on His throne. If that's not grace, I don't know what grace is. Jesus offers grace to every church, even the church in its worst condition, because Jesus is the grace of God. And Jesus reigns. He's the Lord of his church. But Jesus reigns from a throne of grace. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. That he, he, he invites us to come boldly to his throne of grace. And obtain mercy in our time of need. If you need to obtain mercy in your time of need. If you need to obtain mercy, then usually if you need mercy, it's because you did something wrong. That makes sense? I mean, at least, at least, and so if you need mercy, now I can, I, you know, I can take this in another direction too. Uh, but again, I think it was one of the blind men who cried out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We need mercy sometimes for healing, for sickness, we're not, because as a part of this world, as a part of the corruption, we need his mercy. And maybe it's not always because we did something wrong, so maybe I'll take that back to a certain extent. But a lot of times I know when I need mercy, it's because I've done something wrong. But I'm also trying to paint a picture. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. It doesn't matter what you've done right. In, in this context only, his mercy is there. His grace is available. And we should be merciful and gracious to one another, no matter what they've done. I understand there's some consequences, some, some sins. There's some people I don't necessarily want to hang around with, buddy, buddy. But at the same point in time, I, especially if they violated me in some way, and, and some people they've been violated, I'm not saying that we're just going to be buddy, buddy with them. That there, are, there are wisdom in some situations. But we, I'm opening a lot of can of worms right now. But my point is that Jesus offers mercy and grace in our time of need. His throne is available. He has an open throne. His scepter of righteousness is pointed out as it says in the scriptures. I think it's Hebrews chapter 1. His scepter of righteousness is pointed out as God is welcoming us to come to his throne of mercy. This church in its worst condition, he is telling you can come to my throne in your time of need. And receive mercy and help. In other words, I'm trying to paint a picture, church. Don't run away from God because of what you've done wrong. That's what Adam did. Run to Jesus. Because Jesus is knocking 
Jesus is all, Jesus made the first move. He's knocking. He's, you're in your worst condition. In other words, don't be like the church in Laodicea who says, I don't need anything. That's what they said in verse 18 or uh, 18 or 17. I don't need anything. They, 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 they thought that they didn't need anything. I, I don't know about you, but I've met people like that. I've met Christians like that who have this attitude, I don't need anything. That's pride. If you don't need Jesus, if you don't need his help and mercy, even on your good day, that's pride. I don't know about you, but I need his grace and his mercy every day. I need his strength. And I need his sound so I can see the things of God and the mercy of God. I need his sound. I need his grace and mercy so I can have that be gracious and merciful to other people when they've done me wrong. And believe me, I've had people do us wrong. I've had people do worse than wrong. But by his grace and his mercy, I can say, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. I can't say that in my flesh, but I can say that with his grace and mercy. That making sense? Jesus knocks at the door of his church because he desires fellowship. You know, I'm saying this from a lot of different angles, but we're going to be getting into the next section of this, of this book that we're going to get into. It's going to be talking about eschatology or last time of, in events. And Jesus is offering, even to the church in its worst condition, in light of the things that are coming on the earth, I'm knocking on the door so I can come and fellowship with you. So that I, you can sit with me on, this, on my throne. So as we go forward to the days and the ages that are coming, the things that are going to come on the earth, we can go through it together with you sitting with me on my throne. How many of you would be okay to face the tribulations that are ahead sitting on the throne of Jesus with him? How many of you want to go through the things that are ahead without sitting on the throne of Jesus on your own? He's offered grace and mercy to the church in his worst condition. Come have fellowship with me. Come sup with me. Open the door. Let's have a relationship. Jesus is offering a relationship. Not because of what they've done wrong. But because of what Jesus, the Savior of the world, the grace of God has offered us. Eternal life. A relationship with him. He said, he told us, sit with me on my throne. And I will let you reign with me. Church. Do you not see the marvelous, marvelous, marvelous promise? Jesus told us, God told us back in 2004, he's echoed it through the years, rest in my goodness, and I will take care of everything. As we rest in God's goodness, God promises us that he will take care of everything. But we have to, we have to submit to the Lord in the sense that we rest in him. We put our eyes on him. We turn to him. We come to his throne of grace and attain mercy and help in our time of need. We come to him. He's standing at the door. I don't care what you've done wrong. I don't care how long it's been. But he's standing at the door. And God will always be standing. He's not going to harass you. He's not going to force himself. You have to open the door. But he's available. And he, he, I don't care how many times you rejected, how many times you didn't open the door, he will be there again and again and again and again until you open the door. And he, yes, there's going to be some correction. 
Yes, there's going to be some things right in time. He's not going to pour, he's not going to correct everything at once. First thing he's going to do is just come, let's have a stuff together. Let's eat, eat bread together. Let's come sit with me on my throne. And we're going to work this out. And we're going to do it together. Okay? Jesus has a message for every church. Jesus offers every church grace. Every church he reveals himself in a different way. Now, you know one thing I like about that? To all seven of these churches, Jesus reveals himself in a different way based on what they need. There's so many aspects of God that whatever you need of God, Jesus has the answer. Whatever you need. Whether you're a dead church, whether you're a faithful church, whether you're a church in its worst condition, whether you're a compromising church, a corrupt church, a loveless church, wherever you might be, Jesus has the answer. And he's going to reveal to you Jesus. He's going to reveal to you who he is. Okay? That's a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous promise. Jesus is the answer no matter what we need. No matter what the challenges are. No matter what's coming to him. No matter what the problems are. No matter what, what your failures are, your shortcomings, Jesus is the answer. And to every church, in every condition, Jesus offers grace. In every church, Jesus offers a relationship. To every church, Jesus offers help and strength and mercy and grace. Jesus is the answer. And if you will let him be the, the Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, the grace of God, and you will have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus will completely change your life. Amen? Real quickly, let me just leave you with this. Go back with me real quick to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. And John writes, and he was, he, he's instructed by the the Lord, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and in the things which will take place after this. We've talked about this series so far, the things which John saw. John saw Jesus, the Savior of the world. We're going to talk about, we just finished talking about Jesus, the things which are, the things that which are in Asia. The things that, uh, that Jesus is Lord of the church. And we're going to be talking about now in the next week and the things which will take place after this. We're going to be focused on Jesus being our king. Go with me as we close Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place. When? After this. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on that throne. And he who sat on there, there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. And appearance like an emerald. And around the throne was twenty-four thrones. And on the throne I saw twenty-four elders sitting and white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. 
and from the throne proceeding light, lightnings and thunderings and voices, seven lamps of the fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And as we see the seven spirits of God again. What I'm trying to point a picture as so far as we go into, we'll, we'll pick up here next week. But we have the things that Jesus, John saw, the things, the seven churches, the letters of the seven churches, the things that are, and then we have the things that will take place after this. And that's where we find this also here in Revelation 4.1. John saw the voice and heard the voice from heaven saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. <coughs> I'll just let you know, I'm not going to be spending a lot of time specifically going into all of the tribulation stuff. I'm going to make mention of some things. But again, the title of this series, the title of this message is seeing Jesus in the Revelation. I spent more time spending on, on the first part of this book because I want you to see Jesus. And I spent more time on that on purpose because that is the foundation by which we're going to see the rest of this book. Does that make sense? And we'll see it. Hopefully it will make more sense next week as we get into it. I'm going to make mention that. I'm going to list some things uh, that, that will take place. But we're going to the main point of this message is not fear and gloom and gloom or the Antichrist or any of this other stuff. It's there. And we're going we're gonna to bring some light to it. But our main message is to see Jesus in the revelation. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, how it happens, we need to see Jesus. And we miss that, and we miss the whole message of this book. Lord, we thank you, we worship you, we exalt you, we magnify you. We thank you that we can have a relationship with you. Lord, we glorify your name. We magnify you in everything we say and do. God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great week.